Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Hi, and welcome to today's episode on Cybersecurity Inside, what that means, how robots learn. We are going to talk with Yulia Sandomirskaya about neuromorphic computing and how robots continuously learn once they're outside of a contained environment and having to learn new things all the time. At the very end of the episode, uh, I am going to ask her specifically about some of the work that she's done on mobile robotics applications on the Intel Loihi chip. So if you're interested in hearing a little bit more detail about that and spiking neural networks, it's a little more technical. It's at the very end of the episode. In the meantime, let's talk about robots in our homes and what this means for us. Welcome, Yulia. Thank you. Great to be here. So we're excited to do, or I'm very excited to do this show today because Tesla Optimus is coming out. So really wanted to get some insight from you. Um, so when we talk about robots, um, it, it's important to distinguish what, what exactly we mean by a robot. For instance, um, in Japan, for many years, we see these robots that look very much like humans and they have this amazing mimic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a uh, dishwasher, we have you know, laundry washing machines, and we have vacuum cleaner robots that look very differently from humans, like how humans do these tasks. And I'm really curious what we will see as, a, as an Optimus, because the first thing that we see is, of course, the hardware, just the mechanics of the robots, which can be done uh, in a really nice and, and ingenious uh, design way. Now, we want these robots to move somewhat autonomously, um, and this is a different level. So now we are talking about software and algorithms that control the robots. And these algorithms can stay on the question how to move a mechanical system, complex mechanical system around. And this can be done today really nicely. So the movement of the robot can, can be very smooth, can look very human-like. But then the next level comes in, whether the robot can decide you know, where to move to. Can it move towards a particular object? You know, grab some object and give it to me. This brings such things as vision into play, which is another algorithm, which is, you know, has a certain level of complexity. And today there are not too many robots that can flexibly and easily use vision algorithms in, in their daily life. I always wondered why all these robots look like humans, because I don't know that we're the most efficient at doing a lot of the tasks that we work on. Everything in our home is already designed that we can do it. So putting something in the same shape and then having it use the same tools that we already use, I don't know. Yeah, I think there should be some some balance. So we should find some right level of abstraction. So it should be human-like enough to you know be efficient in this environment. So maybe something like you know six or seven degrees of freedom arm that is built like human arm is a useful thing. We want it to move around. Whether we want it to walk on on legs or to roll on wheels, might be more efficient if it's just on wheels. So we might make some compromises. And it's similar like this uh, comparison between the birds' flight and the airplane flight. So people have found mm-hmm. some like right features that we want to copy, like the shape of the wing. Right. Um, so, so we could copy from this structure you know, of the human body, whatever is really useful for the task and practical. Like what about this crossover? Like you say, our bodies was, I mean, it seems to me we're definitely headed in the direction of biology crossing over with the mechanical. 
So do you think that that will combine somehow or other? I mean, I know the term transhuman is out there a lot, but I don't necessarily mean that. Just this merging of the biological and digital or the computer, biological and mechanical. In the long term, certainly, right? So I cannot imagine myself today, right? Without either my phone or my computer, right? So a lot of my memory is offloaded to, to these devices. So they're already part of my kind of system. And we make things part of our system very quickly. There are all these experiments, like, you know, if you give someone a tool and you work with this tool, neurons in your brain extend the representation of your body to this tool within minutes. Um, so certainly, so if I would have a white arm that stands on the table like in front of me and, uh, follows my commands, then very quickly I will just see it as part of, you know, something that I can control. And if you look at prosthetics today, for instance, I think it's quite amazing what has been achieved, right, with prosthetic devices. Wirelessly, and I guess I've seen, you know, demonstrations of prosthetic arms that are wireless. So even if the arm is not attached to the body, person's moving it and the arm can be moving somewhere else. So, I mean, it's all, that's already out there, but. Right. So to help people, right, who need assistance like that, just, no, augmenting people with a third arm, I can also imagine like it's a construction works or something like that. Yeah. And, and that's normal. We do it all the time, right? We extend our representation of our body to all the tools that, that we use. Oh, okay. That's fair. But what about the brain? Because neuromorphic computing is definitely attempting to be structured very similar to the human brain. So why mimic that in compute? Why not do that completely differently? So it's quite fascinating what the brains can achieve. And not only human brain, but also like brains of animals, even insects. Like a bee with a million of neurons can build some representation of the environment, can then go find food, come back, communicate that to its uh, Fellow bees can um, navigate land efficiently with very compact, very energy efficient computing system. I find it just fascinating and very inspiring. And I think if we could build computing systems like that, that could be very you know, advanced and useful and efficient technology. And then this is one and only example that we know works of a system that can flexibly, adaptively learn and act in our natural environments. Our brains, you mean? Our brains. Oh, other neural systems. We don't have uh, another example yet. When we have robots in our homes, robots continue to learn. Should we be afraid of that? I think we should look forward to that. And hopefully, because of that, we'll get robotic assistance that can actually be helpful. Now, when learning comes into play, that's another level of complexity. And here we have to distinguish offline learning when we maybe train part of the algorithm that controls the robot offline with a lot of data. Um, just because of the complexity of the task that we train it with examples of when this task is solved. And then we'll let this algorithm control the robot. Uh, what we try to achieve and explore in our work is continual learning. And, and this is difficult uh, because, of course, if the system can learn continually, how can we guarantee that it does the correct thing? And usually when people work on continual learning algorithms, they make sure that the system stays safe and controlled. I'm trying to understand like the difference between continual learning and learning in a fixed environment. I think I understand to some degree, but when, you know, obviously when you send a robot out of a fixed location or a manufacturing setting, and now it's like walking around town with a human or in a home, but help us understand a little bit better the difference. 
in, in a fixed environment of a factory, we can control you know, where the objects that we want the robot to work with, where they're located, how they look like, we know exactly which object is where then. We don't really need much of the flexibility. It's not even about learning, but just how flexible we want the robot to be. We want it to go into sequence of movements very precisely. We want to be productive and just without stop. This is why in the classical factory, robots are usually put into a cage so that um, you make sure that no, no human is in the way of this robot. Because those robots, very often, they, they have minimal perception, if at all. Um, they just execute a sequence of movements, like a sequence you know, of program steps. The moment when we want to bring robots in unstructured environments, shared with naive humans who just run around and can appear in the workspace of the robot unexpectedly, then we need to make sure that the robot can react to its environment. So we need good perception. And, and this is one step kind of away from the good old robotics that we know from the factory floor. Now, perception happens to be really complicated. It's really amazing how we are able to visually perceive our world and understand what is where. And the complexity is immense. There are so many different objects. There are so many different lighting conditions. We have this 3D perspective, so the same object can look very differently in the real world. So when people try to just break down the program, an algorithm that will allow a robot to recognize things in the environment, it didn't really scale well. It was difficult to scale it to all possible objects that a robot can encounter in natural environments. So machine learning came to help. And with machine learning, uh, you can give the system a lot of examples of all the objects, and you don't have to think which features shall I use to recognize and distinguish one object from the other one. I will just give many examples with labels. This is this object, this is that. And then I will train the system. And this works fairly well. And today in the state of the art, this is what, what people use. And this is this offline trained model of the world. But now this model might need to be changed. Now, new objects come into play. I might not um, have thought about all possible situations that the robot will encounter. Um, or simply, I want my system to be compact and efficient and maybe even run on the robot so that they don't have to send the data, like the video data, to the cloud and back. Which means my neural network, my machine learning system, needs to be small and compact. And if it's small and compact, it cannot represent like, every possible situation in this world. And then I might want to be able to teach this robot a couple objects that it needs to know that, that are from my household. Um, so that's how learning comes in, into play. Okay, I have so many questions. So let's say you want the robot to vacuum. So you show it the vacuum cleaner. You show it the vacuum cleaner in all different lights from all different angles. It's using computer vision to perceive what this thing is so that it can understand that's the object. Then it has to learn to plug it into the wall. Um, it has to learn like the length of the cord. It has to learn the edge of the carpet gets, you know, sucked up and vacuumed. That's not good. We have to do it differently. How is it learning all that as it encounters different things that we forget to teach it, right? You, f you forgot to mention the carpet gets sucked into it. How does it adapt yeah. to that kind of thing? And, um, and also what is it really seeing or perceiving? Like if it's vacuuming the floor, does it see the dust? Does it see Anything else in its environment, does it know you have like Windex and soap piled up next to the vacuum or is it only seeing the vacuum and only seeing the floor and not the dust? Like, do we know what it's seeing? So first one thing to note is that we're talking about the future. So we don't have such robots today. We'll see, maybe we'll have one next week. <laughs> uh, but if you think about these robots and, and really think about learning here, then we probably have to distinguish different types of learning. So this robot will need to learn different objects 
will need to be able to recognize and localize them in the environment. And this is one type of learning. It's like for us, the object learning is different from skill learning, for instance. Skill learning are different behaviors. For instance, if it needs to learn how to plug a plug into the wall, it's a skill that is learned with different methods. Now, the skills can be continuous, like the behavior when I plug the plug into the wall, it's a continuous behavior. I might have a sequence of discrete behaviors, like you know, if I have to clean up the table, then there's a certain sequence how I take you know glasses and plates, I put them in a dishwasher, I close it, I let it start. And here, the sequence of behaviors could also be learned with reinforcement learning. Usually, it would take too long, so we don't want to do it. It could learn by imitation, so that the human shows the robot once. This is how you can do it. And then the robot just parses the sequence of actions and then takes it at the basis. And then maybe does a little reinforcement learning on top of that to make sure that it got it right or that each individual behavior in robot's execution can match the desired goal. And then on top of that comes, for instance, reasoning. So if the robot can recognize and localize objects in the environment, it might be able to then build some model reasoning. For instance, there's a cup that is on the table that would be spatial reasoning. And then close to this cup, there's some other object. Um, so if the human tells me, where is my key in the room? I, I see maybe two keys. I can ask, do you want the one that's on the table or the one that's on the shelf? And then language capabilities come on top of that. Those also could maybe be learned. So the whole system is quite complex. I don't think that there's one learning algorithm that will allow the robot to learn it all. Yeah, that's the vision. In practice, I'm pretty sure we will face many challenges when we start building systems like that. As we have you know, robots out continuously learning amongst ourselves, not in cages, as you said, <laughs> in factories, you know, how do we set them up to protect humans? So I would see you know, each robot is a particular tool. I think in the beginning, so it's great to see Optimus and we'll see how versatile it will be. Um, so my vision is that the robots will be there for a particular task. And I will start with a very simple task. And it will be very clear that this is what this arm is doing. It's going to an object to position A or to object A and brings us to the place B. And it won't touch you on the way. So if you are in its way, it will try to plan the route so it doesn't touch you. And that's it. That's all it does. Uh, and we can make sure that you know, if a child happens to put its finger somewhere between the joints of the robot, the robot stops on time and, and no injury is happening. It seems like the amount of perception that it would have to do is so great. I know we're doing it in cars to a degree today through computer vision and even like predicting the way that a person's moving maybe 30 feet to the side of the road might imply they're going to be in front of the car in some amount of time. And I know that some of that can be pretty sophisticated. But when you're talking about a robot in the house, how can you make sure that it's safe other than just it can't go too fast and it's soft on the outside? Like if it's got a task, isn't it just going to do that task? You know, The fact that it will be in the home is actually good because you have this closed environment. Many things in this environment are stationary. So you make once a good three-dimensional map of the environment where what is, then you only keep track of updates of changes. And you just need sensors that tell you when something is moving. Um, you would need some, like when it gets closer to the robot, you need slightly better sensing to make sure you notice that. And in the worst case, if you touch something, then you can have sensing in the joints themselves. So if you know you touch something that you haven't expected to touch, it will stop. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so today the robots are certified to work among humans if they can do that reliably you know, with a couple redundant mechanisms that would just make the robot stop if it touches something unexpectedly. What about uh, privacy? How can we feel like we have our privacy when there's a machine that can actually learn living among us? <laughs> yeah, so I think one answer and, and ambition would be try to make this all on board uh, of the computer, make the processing, like day-to-day processing on, on board of the robot, not mm. sending uh, that to the cloud. Um, I can imagine many people would be uh, uncomfortable if images from, from the camera would be sent to the cloud. The sound uh, is maybe less critical, uh, but the images is really critical. So I think all this processing that is about like safe movement around, the processing should be done on board of the robot. And this is why, again, neuromorphic computing or some of the efficient computing comes into play because you know, we don't want to send all that information to the cloud where you can have this large model. However, we also might want uh, like our overall like robotic software to learn from all these examples of what the robot mm-hmm. experiences uh, in the particular home. And there are some some concepts in federated learning, for instance, mm-hmm. when you know, there is some learning happening on board of the robot and only result of this learning, only updated model is sent for central kind of processing and merging. And then the result of merging is sent back, back to the robot instead of raw data. So the raw data stays local. So people are thinking of these issues. Um, they mm-hmm. have got serious issues for acceptability of these systems. On the other hand, we might get used that some things are sent out, mm-hmm. right? With the Alexa and all these other devices, we kind of mm-hmm. accepted some level of uh, you know, information sharing, data sharing. And I have to ask, because I know that you also get together with Yosha Bach, and I had him on a podcast a little bit ago talking about machine consciousness do you believe that there's a possibility for machines or robots to have consciousness over time or now? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be very comfortable claiming much here um, because the, the definition of consciousness itself is a little bit controversial, right? So we don't have like a crystal crisp definition that everyone agrees upon. One thing to maybe keep in mind that our brains are also not something that just not only emerges from interaction with the environment and there's only learning and nothing else. There's a lot of uh, developmentally defined structure, evolutionary defined structure in our brains. So, so in the same in, in the robots, they will be as smart as we program them to be. And, and the learning will be part of that smartness, but also we will define the learning algorithm. We will define the cost functions and it all will be task related. So all those algorithms, they are part of an artificially designed designed machine for a particular task, for a particular goal. So I I don't see any place for anything like consciousness there. As long as we don't really understand where exactly this phenomenon comes in biology, uh, we won't be able to replicate it in, in the machine. I'm personally not worried about too much consciousness in, in, in robots. Hmm. Do you worry about anything? I, I know you're very enthusiastic about them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm worried a little bit about dual use. So all the systems that can uh, recognize things, recognize humans, be used for military purposes, and this is where it gets a little bit scary and uncomfortable. And this can be difficult for this technology to move forward, right? Because the public opinion might swing one way or another if it's not like 100%. So not a single accident is forgiven. Humans have hundreds and thousands of accidents per day and the robot, like one accident per year where you can kill business for the next year. 
Mm-hmm. On the ethical issues, if some some people will be able to afford these robot helpers and others not, might lead to even more inequality. Could be problematic with jobs if all kind of easy jobs will be replaced and automatized without making sure that people who were relying on these jobs are taken care of or get some additional education and can do something else uh, might also be problematic. And and what do you think the future of robotics is? I mean, that uh, just I think about looking back over the last you know fifteen to twenty years and how much has changed. If you could think forward fifteen or twenty years, do you have any sense of how things might change? I would hope that in like 10, 15 years, we will have at least first autonomous mechanical devices that can assist humans. Maybe not in everyday home, but maybe maybe in the hospital environment, in elderly care environments, maybe in manufacturing or farming or construction sites. So taking over some repetitive uh, or boring or dangerous jobs from humans, uh, assisting them. A more general purpose assistant robot like a butler at home, that is probably still further away. But on the other hand, these changes sometimes happen very quickly and unexpectedly. Like who expected the iPhone right and then where it would be today in 2006? (laughs) So we'll see. I didn't want to leave the podcast today, Yulia, without asking you about an award that you won for best paper at the recent ICONS conference 2022, which is a neuromorphic computing conference. Um, Can you elaborate on the difference between neuromorphic computing and spiking neural networks that you used on the Intel Loihi chip? Mm -hmm. So if you think about computing architecture, Usually the computing architectures that we deal with are fairly boring, right? It's the same basic principle that goes all the way back to the to first computers. So you have a CPU, you have a, a memory, no different levels of memory. And then like any computation requires us to go back and forth between the memory and the computing device. If we have some massively parallel system that we need to process, and the massively parallel could just be images that we get from the camera, this large matrices, and all pixels come at the same time. They want, we want to process them at the same time. Today, we do this with the neural networks. So we add even more parallelism. Now we have millions and millions of neurons. They all have to act at the same time. But on the conventional processor, they cannot be acted upon at the same time. They have to be processed sequentially. And we can do that, but potentially it um, consumes a lot of energy and can also take a lot of time. If we look into graphical processing units, they alleviate this problem a little bit because they were built to do computer graphics, so to create images uh, on our screens, and they are built for processing these parallel arrays of data images. So they can do it much faster than a CPU-based architecture. Now, neuromorphic computing is another type of computing architecture where we also have a massively parallel system of cores. For instance, on Loihi, we have 128 cores on a single chip. And each core has local memory, meaning when I now have want to update my, my variables of large parallel system, I can do it very efficiently because the variables are stored close to the processor. So now I can update the state of these variables, my neurons, and can also update the connections between them, which are also stored locally, can also update them efficiently. This allows me to learn on the fly. Now, the spiking aspect is connected to event-based processing. So these neurons, they don't work in a clock-like fashion. In the conventional computing, in particular image processing, you get the new image from the camera every 30 milliseconds. And then when the new image is there, you do processing with the clock of the processor, step by step. On a neuromorphic chip, typically you wouldn't have a clock. It's asynchronous. 
Hmm. Every neuron receives input when the input comes. It has some internal dynamics, so it integrates this input, keeps the state um, that is driven by the input. And then when the state reaches some threshold, it communicates with other neurons with discrete, typically binary events. So it sends an event to downstream neurons saying, my variable reached the threshold, or you can act upon that. So this makes communication between neurons much sparser in time. So you don't have to transmit information on every time step. You only transmit information once in a while, ideally sparsely, so seldomly, and you save a lot of energy by doing that. So with spiking neural networks, you are in the realm of event-based synchronous computing, uh, which is faster and more energy efficient for, for many tasks. And this is what neuromorphic chips typically exploit, in particular our Intel's research chip over here. I can see why that could be useful in robotics. I believe that for robotic tasks, that's a really nice match between the hardware and, and the tasks. Because here we work with neural network-based algorithms, but we have a huge algorithmic space of the type of neural networks that we can efficiently run on this hardware. These are not only feed-forward networks that are good for image processing or convolutional neural networks, they can be all kinds of topologies. We can have some topology that generates some oscillations that could you know, control mm -hmm. the robot. We can have some recurrent networks that also implement controllers. We can have some graph-based search algorithms implemented on this hardware efficiently. We can have optimization algorithms implemented efficiently. And, and for robotic tasks, we need all these different types of algorithms. It's not just one you know, feed-forward neural network that can solve all these different tasks. And they can run in real time and, and uh, energy, like saving energy efficiently, which is important for robots. So I, I, I think it's a really nice match between neuromorphic computing and robotic tasks, um, which is no wonder because the neuromorphic computing mimics the way how biological neural systems process information like pretty faithfully, better than other computing systems we, we have so far. And those biological neural systems, they evolved to control movement in real-world environments. So it's at least one solution that works nicely. There might be others, but we know that this one works. Well, Yulia Sandomirskaya, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Zurich. And uh, Algorithm, a researcher within the Neuromorphic Computing Lab at Intel, which is located in Munich. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kamal. It was fun. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.